Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Natasha Leonard about the story of reproductive rights activists who are being charged under a law intended to protect abortion clinics, as well as the broader implications this has in the struggle for reproductive care and bodily autonomy more generally. Natasha Leonard is a columnist for The Intercept, Her work has appeared in The Nation, Book Forum, and The New York Times, among other outlets. She teaches critical journalism at the New School for Social Research in New York, and is the author of Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life. In this conversation, Natasha gives an overview of what's happening on the ground in Florida with regard to the prosecution of two activists involved with the decentralized group, Jane's Revenge, as well as how this relates to the future of reproductive rights after the fall of Roe. She also explains why it's important to consider the undermining of abortion access alongside the increasing attacks on the rights of trans and gender non-conforming people. Finally, before we get into this episode, I'd like to invite everyone listening to join Red Medicine for a night of readings and discussion at the Horse Hospital in London on May 25th. There will be readings by Amber Hussein, Matt Colhoun and Misha Fraser-Carroll on the topic of illness and why it offers us, as people on the left, to think about its political, social and cultural significance. It's going to be a really good evening, so if you're able to make it to London, please do join. The cost of admission is on a sliding scale, so you can pay anything from £15 to nothing, depending on what you're able to afford. And please do get a ticket using the link in the show notes, as it will make it easier to manage numbers. So with all that said, on with the episode. You have recently written one of your columns reporting on something that's happened in Florida where two people have been arrested um, using something called the FACE Act for alleged graffiti on a crisis pregnancy centre, which people in the UK might not be as aware of, and we can get into that in a little while. Um, But could you start by people that aren't aware of what's going on, just giving them the overview of what's happened and a sort of general outline of the situation. Absolutely. So, so yeah, earlier um, this month, two people in uh, Florida, as you mentioned, uh, one guy called Caleb Freestone and one young woman called Amber Smith-Stewart were arrested and faced quite serious charges. Um, their alleged violation was no more than, than graffiti, Um, But the reason they face up to 12 years in prison is that they were arrested under a very specific law that was passed in the 90s, and it's called the FACE Act, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances. For the most part, 
the law has been applied in a way that its creation was intended. So in the 90s, um, listeners may or may not know, there was a real peak in um, really uh, violent extremist right-wing actions against abortion clinics throughout the US. There were huge, huge uh, blockades that not only dissuaded people from going and getting abortions and harassed workers at these clinics, they uh, quite literally blocked them. There'd be blockades with chains and cars, uh, thousands of people. And in the same era, you had assassinations. You know, we should always underline just how deadly violent the uh, anti-abortion movement has been in its in its history. In 93 and 94, there were assassinations of two abortion doctors in Florida and one of their bodyguards. And so in response to that, Congress passed the FACE Act, which made it a federal offense to block clinics and attack and harass clinic workers and abortion seekers attending clinics. Of course, it was you know, it was passed in a bipartisan Congress and uh, there was no way in hell that the word abortion clinic was ever going to be put into the law itself. So the way it defines clinics is pretty broad. Um, it's basically just any clinic that can claim to provide reproductive health services. Now, at the same time in the last decades, there has been an absolute explosion of these highly Christian very well funded crisis pregnancy centers and they are incredibly misleading to the point that it should be fraudulent um because basically what they do is they advertise to and attempt to attract pregnant people often young pregnant people by saying come in we often counseling we'll give you a pregnancy test we'll give you a um a scan presenting themselves as a, a legitimate healthcare clinic, but these are anti-abortion clinics that have reliably and regularly been found to mislead pregnant people about how long they've been pregnant for uh, in a way that means that they often miss, you know, those early windows in the states where abortions are legal still to even get them. And they try and persuade people out of getting abortions. They are basically anti-abortion centers. Um, and in recent years, um, especially with the lead up to and following the fall of Roe, we've seen some, what I would say, completely reasonable attacks against these very misleading, very dangerous pregnancy crisis centers. Attacks in terms of, uh, you know, low level property damage graffiti, drawing attention to the fact that these are not you know, reproductive healthcare centers. These are not abortion clinics. And a lot of these actions were done under the umbrella name, almost the calling card, uh, Jane's Revenge. And, you know, if anyone knows how um, far-right commentators, even liberal centrist commentators and politicians respond to when there's a kind of network presumed or things are done under umbrella term, mm -hmm. um, a bit like Antifa, the yeah. immediate response is, it's an organized top-down network <laughs> and they are terrorists and we must yeah. get this national top-down organized group. So in this very grim two-sidesism, this absurdist two-sidesism, at the very moment that attacks on actual abortion clinics legislative decimation of abortion rights and justices are fully underway in response to the whining 
from anti-abortion Republicans in Congress, federal law enforcement has made a point of going after people they believe to have engaged in Jane's revenge activity. So that's what these arrests were in Florida. At the same time, the FBI has also put out calls to the public with bounties of up to $25,000 saying, please provide us information on any other Jane's revenge participants. So it's, you know, that this is more than just two people. This is a potential campaign. And what's so sickening about it is even if it passes muster under the letter of the law of the FACES Act, because technically these fake anti-abortion centers do get to be classified as reproductive health services because they offer counseling and fake medical care, that, that it's it's permissible that the FBI and that federal prosecutors are using the FACE Act in these cases because these count as clinics, but they absolutely shouldn't. And in the spirit of the law, it's even if not in the letter, it's really violent to be using this law that came out of uh, attempts to stop, you know, the assassination of clinic workers and abortion providers, young people who are, you know, engaging in the sort of actions that can be cleaned up with like a fresh coat of paint for the most part or a new window um, and now facing 12 years in prison under this act based on Republican pressure. And it's it's very grim uh, at this moment. And I think there will be more prosecutions like this, whether they'll work in court um, and whether charges like threats of violence, whether these graffiti acts will actually, proving that is a very high standard. And looking at the precedent of this law being used before almost entirely and rightly so against anti-abortion activists. Not that I put much any face in the criminal legal system to, to deal, deal out justice. But, you know, when this law has been used before, the things that have counted as threats have been personal named letters to doctors calling up specific people, you know, really imminent activity, um, unnamed, vague, graffiti slogans like if abortion isn't safe neither are you I don't think it'll pass muster in court who knows you can have awful prosecutors um cruel judges right-wing judges but still even so these are malicious prosecutions that uh attack you know reproductive justice direct action and so I'm not very aware of the intricacies of American law but why is this act so who who is it that's you know, who is it that's called for this act to be used in this prosecution? Why is it being used as opposed to just, you know, a standard charge for graffiti or whatever? Where's that push coming from? Yeah, it's it's deeply politicised. So last year, given, even though the Republicans were really getting absolutely everything they wanted in terms of uh, the national and various statewide um, and federal decimation of all rights, a number of Republican congressmen in Washington drew attention to the fact that this FACE Act, which really hasn't been used that much in its 30 years of existence, maybe like 100 cases, it's not like a robustly enacted uh, or taken up law. But for obvious reasons, almost all, if not, in fact, I picked through all the cases that it has been used against. And unless I'm missing something, I think these two arrests now, the only prosecutions for pro-abortion rights activists rather than anti-extremists, um, that um, 
you know, the Republicans were like, hey, look at the FACE Act, look at this misuse, this political misuse of the FACE Act only to go after, um, you know, the so-called pro-life side. So clearly you see that in response to that directive, federal law enforcement were like, okay, we must make a political point of showing that we are fair to two sides by uh, illegitimately going after kids like um, Freestone and Stuart Smith. Not kids, I mean, they're in their 20s, but, um, you know, so it's it's like highly politicized and at a time where it's hardly like those of us interested in defending the rights to an abortion and any sort of, let alone like reproductive justice more robustly. It's not like we're on the front foot here. So it just seems really aggressive. Um, but again, unsurprising. Yeah. So let me ask you a bit about the broader context, because I guess there's two key things. One is the sort of dire state of reproductive rights in the US generally, not re- not just recently, but, but generally, historically. I remember reading in your article that these centres, right-wing Christian-funded centres that pose as providing abortion care and pregnancy care, outnumber actual abortion clinics by three to one which is Mm -hmm. just stunning (laughs) frankly um and then there's the more recent context of the overturning of roe v wade i mean could you talk about the broader context of this attack because obviously things like this and jane's revenge more generally which we can get onto are increasing in frequency and attention because of this these two sort of developing uh, attacks basically right so um you know as i think maybe like listeners in the uk so like i you know when the fall of roe came and when the, the leaked opinion that that made clear just how imminent the fall of roe was going to be last year um i got a lot of um you know like panicked my god can't believe what's happening over there calls from like my mom and people in 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 England because that's where yeah. I've grown up um and you know not that I'd presume that that anyone need know like the intricacies of like the difference between state laws and federal laws and to be clear um the supreme court decision in dobbs to overturn roe has huge implications and even if you live in a state like New York where you can still get abortions and it's where I live um obviously the the tax on the abortion clinics in those places is huge because you have people from coming coming from out of state you've got uh, ever more supported and vigorous anti-abortion movement in state houses trying to find all kinds of elaborate ways to for example um you know uh legal uh, criminalize people that help people cross states in order to get abortions. And then, you know, you've got the counter efforts from uh, abortion providing states to create laws as they must to protect people who are, you know, prescribing um, abortion pills across state lines, things like that. So it's it's a, the fact that we've got this patchwork system, legal system of states, means that, you know, the fall of Roe, and it was alleged by some Republicans that that Roe made the uh, legal terrain of of reproductive rights too complicated. The complications post Roe are are you know abundant, moving through all these different state laws. 
But, you know, what's definitely worth emphasizing is that for, for many, many, many states in the South, any many red states, the post-Roe was a de facto reality before the fall of Roe. There would be no way to get an abortion in a state where there's only one abortion clinic for millions of people at best. So people lived without the possibility in their states um, to get abortions. In, and, you know, if they didn't have the resources to get out, as now, that, that precedent far predated Roe because the right-wing attack on abortion rights and bodily autonomy more generally has obviously not just appeared in the last few years. Obviously, it didn't, you know, it didn't arrive at the same moment Donald Trump came down those bloody escalators and announced his presidency campaign. Um, it has been decades and decades. There have been numerous versions of the new right, the new religious right, that have been incredibly successful in a war of a thousand paper cuts to completely do away with access and the ability of people to get um, the care they need to get the abortions they need, which, you know, should just be free and available for all without having to give grounds. Um, we're so far away from that reality. But funnily enough, albeit limited, it's interesting that we're looking at Florida with these cases and that it was because of instance in Florida that the FACE Act was really, you know, that was a lot of the catalyst for passing the FACE Act in the 90s. Florida has ha has had and still to this point does have, even though it's under threat, abortion protections written into its state constitution. And so like abortion has often been even long before when it's needed to be for places in the South, which were basically living in a post-Roe reality even before last year, Florida has been a destination state. And still is, uh, you know, all the more so after Roe, even though, you know, they they have very restricted abortion laws, you can still get an abortion in Florida for now. So it's all the more pernicious when you have people traveling from out of state who don't know where they are, if they are enticed by or find through a Google search when they're putting in abortion clinic Florida and the first things that pop up in Google search are these incredibly well-funded, incredibly manipulative crisis pregnancy um, centers, CPCs, um, you know, it's, it's, it's especially understandable and, um, you know, I think commendable that you have people trying to draw attention with, you know, like James Revenge, trying to draw attention to what these places actually are. Um, they're not the only groups doing that. There's a lot of other frontline abortion workers and reproductive Justice um, advocates and activists who are doing this work too. I'm not asking everyone to be super supportive of vandalism. It doesn't bother me at all in cases like this, you know, to, uh, against a much, you know, a really, really uh, considerable, harmful set of institutions. But, you know, even if people don't support that as, as a type of action that they can get behind, the idea that, like, it's that these acts are now being treated as, um, you know, extremist threats worthy of 12 years in prison is uh, bonkers and terrible. But yeah, so that's why also Florida is an important place to look in terms of places in the South that do still have some access to abortion. But yeah, in terms of the idea that that every, that that there'd been sort of robust reproductive rights and access um, to abortions and that and related care, and let alone like, you know, people that do want to become parents and have the support necessary 
especially black women and other women of color and other pregnant people of color um, and, you know, trans pregnant people. The idea that um, even people that did want to be, you know, be pregnant, stay pregnant, have kids. There was no support for that either. Um, And those things obviously go hand in hand that, um, you know, reproductive justice movement, black women led reproductive justice movement, reproductive liberties struggle have made clear that this isn't just about the right to abortion, right? It's the right to, if you want to be a parent, if you want to have a baby to be supported, you know, materially and uh, emotionally in doing so. And none, you know, that that hasn't been available for months and months, for years and years and years uh, because of the success of the, you know, fascistic, pronatalist far right yeah and so let's talk about jane's jane's revenge because as you say there's a lot of misconceptions around what they are and are not and their structure and there's a, probably a, a willful uh ignorance to their structure in certain parts of the media and political spectrum um Could you just briefly explain how they emerged and um, maybe also kind of the name Jane's Revenge that obviously has a huge um, symbolism with relation to Jane Roe in the original Roe v. Wade Wade case, but then also the Jane Collective of DIY abortion care in Chicago in the 60s and 70s. So, yeah, to start off with, when did Jane's Revenge emerge and... Just to reiterate, could you explain what their structure is as a quote-unquote organization? Yeah, so so Jane's Revenge, and it's you know I haven't. It's not like I've had um, interviews with people who um, <laughs> yeah. participated in Jane's Revenge actions. Like they exist almost like like a specter, and I think that's part of yeah. the tactic. I think that's that's great, um, especially given like it's risk it's risky work. They, you'd first start seeing Jane's Revenge actions in the name of Jane's Revenge, claimed in the names of Jane's Revenge uh, in like spring last year, spring 2022. Uh, and it was a direct response to the leak I mentioned earlier of the Supreme Court decision that made clear that the fall of Roe was was nigh. Um, and indeed it was. So you started to see all around the country spray painting on uh, you know, anti-abortion group headquarters and um, these CPCs, these fake clinics, these slogans like, you know, we are everywhere and if abortion's not safe, nor are you. And that's been the sort of extent of it, um, property damage up until now uh, and remains to be the case. Um, Jane's Revenge is indeed um, a reference specifically to the Jane Collective and the work done because that was, you know, an underground organization and a network and, you know, worked in different nodes so people could go to them and be able to obtain abortions. And this was prior to the Roe decision in 1973. It was a kind of pre-Roe reality. So Jane's Revenge is sort of an homage to that in its title, and is actively, uh, you know, and to me, this counts as is counts as direct action, insofar as it directly can stop people going into these CPCs if they, you know, have to shut down for a few days to replace a window or paint over their stuff, or if someone sees the graffiti and is made aware of it. So it's not just a protest, right? It's not just a symbolic act. If it actually can disrupt the working of these clinics, um, which should not be, I believe. Uh, I think it should it sh- should they should be considered too fraudulent to fall under the um, category of clinic. But, you know, 
that'll be a f- hard fight to to win. Mm. Um, it's not sort of a non-starter. Um, but these are this is a horizontalist group, if you can call it a group at all, and uh, it it works similarly in in structure as the umbrella label Antifa does. Um, it also works a little bit like. Alf and Elf, the Animal Liberation Front and the Environmental Liberation Front, who were active in the 90s, uh, environmentalists and animal liberation activists who would also daub We Are Everywhere uh, on their target buildings and uh, sites where they would, you know, for example, Alf would um, free animals from uh, cruel testing centers. And, you know, it wasn't that there was some sort of top-down DSA, Democratic Socialists of America-style chapters of ALF with, um, you know, chairman and elected committees. Um, These are people taking autonomous underground action in the name of a given group, a kind of non-connected, non-official group that, you know, connects the actions as part of the same struggle and is a way of kind of calling into being a movement that doesn't have top-down organization, but can work as, uh, you know, suggesting to our opposition, suggesting to those in power, um, which is why the phrase, we are everywhere, um, you know, seems to cycle through all these different kinds of movements that that are based in autonomous activities being taken up, is that, you know, it suggests the power that that, you know, there are these people who are willing to take action. They don't need to know each other um, I would put money on the fact that people engaging, you know, in a Jane's Revenge action in, say, Portland, uh, have absolutely no direct contact with the Jane's Revenge people in Florida. But people are taking up the mantle and taking up the umbrella term in the same way um, when people, uh, you know, th- there are certain examples of of there being anti-fascist collectives and, um, you know, named groups, but Antifa on the whole is a tactic and it's a set of tactics and it's um, an affinity. Um, and it, Jane's Revenge works that way. But if anyone remembers how, uh, particularly in the US, but but this is international too, law enforcement reacts to the notion of that. It's just unthinkable. Like they, they, <laughs> like they cannot get their heads around um, non-hierarchical, non um top-down organizing and autonomous action and it's also much harder it's you know like law enforcement wants to be able to call upon resources available to them the policing and prosecutorial resources available to them if they can call something a group because then you can do you can use um like gang related charges or rico charges or organized crime charges if you can say these are organized groups, but they're not they're horizontalists they're autonomous the people usually uh in different towns even even in the same town might not know each other but engage in um an action in the name of jane's revenge Mm. do you think the reason why a tactic like the one jane's revenge are calling on is i mean to me it seems like a reasonable response to what we would maybe describe as a kind of minority rule you know the state in the US is uh, the the there's a democratic government in in power at the moment in the states. Um, there's polling to suggest access to abortion is pretty widely popular, and yet for some reason we're witnessing, 
you know, the most rapid and sort of increasingly worrying attacks on reproductive rights and, as you say, bodily autonomy more generally. So surely that, you know, do you think it's just kind of a natural progression from the fact that if all these other political avenues of organising are closed down by, you know, actors acting in bad faith, you know, of course, groups like this are going to emerge with such a serious issue where, you know, lots of people will die. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, what else I mean, is there to do? I mean, yeah, I think it's it's a it's a crucial point. Like the yeah, the, the decimation of reproductive rights was was achieved, you know, very savvily through through minority rule and weaponizing minority rule both in the um, you know, far right now stacking of you know six to three stacking of the supreme court um and let alone all the right-wing federal level lower level but federal level judges that that the trump administration poured into courts all around the country um when during the trump presidency um something that biden has failed to counter entirely um which puts us in all kinds of dangerous decisions for example uh, situations for example one judge now in the next week or so could make illegal the production of the the most commonly used and considered the safest uh, abortion pill if only by one state a very carefully directed lawsuit directed at a right, very right wing judge um a federal judge will uh you know, challenge the FDA's approval of this drug and make it illegal to sell. This is a huge thing that that is the most uh, you know clear example of what can happen when uh, there's a careful maneuvering and manipulation of the judicial and political system, which we have in the U.S. through you know gerrymandering and decimation of the right to to vote in poor and black communities of color just the the general way the electoral college works there's all kinds of layers that that ensure uh, or or enact the possibility of minority rule usually if not always in conservative favor particularly with the electoral college um so you've got these state houses who are around the country so judges aside you've also got um people passing these really violent laws in republican led state houses nationwide um and they're all passing these model legislation it's called so it'll be legislation written and designed in its core by think tanks very very wealthy think tanks like the heritage foundation and basically passed down to republican lawmakers who then get it through each state house um and then it goes on to the state law books um but it's not at all some sort of reflection of the popular will. It's both top-down and deeply anti-democratic and minority rule, as we've seen that whenever there has been a... uh, Some states have ballots that work for certain um, proposed laws as referendum, referenda. Um, And every time there's been that sort of ballot open in a given state, even deep red Kansas last year, um, and it's about whether to ban abortion or not. Overwhelming majorities of people vote to keep abortion protections. Uh, so, you know, this is and it's considered one of the key reasons that in last year's midterms, the Democrats didn't do actually nearly as badly as was predicted. Everyone predicted a red wave because the economy was in the toilet and, um, you know, the government hasn't really 
given us anything (laughs) and um you know so uh it wasn't a red wave but not because the democrats really earned it by actually going out of their way to protect um reproductive rights uh going anywhere towards any way to protect the bodily autonomy of gender non-conforming and trans people or lgbtq freedoms um but people voted in large numbers against abortion bans. So you end up de facto voting for Democrats, even if they haven't done anything to deserve it. Um, So that's also a major situation. Um, You know, people, in the same way that if you poll people, which you wouldn't gather from uh, reading the establishment media in New York Times, hugely guilty party, the same way most people you poll them are not um, activated to be anti-trans. Yeah. You know, this is a very we're seeing these things happen hand in hand. The the very same moment, really harsh abortion laws were being uh proposed and passed on mass um in the last few years. Uh it's no accident they were coming at exactly the same time as as anti-trans laws. Um and people have, I wrote one of my last columns, I think my last column of last year, was about how, you know, liberals who maybe hadn't been joining the front lines of uh, abortion rights struggle when it's been a long necessary fight, have jumped on that since the fall of Roe, much more so, and have, you know, come together to to push back against these uh, mass abortion bans, totalizing abortion bans, um, have not done the same to protect trans kids, even though, um, you know, for, for Republicans and the people writing these laws, they very much go hand in hand with the pro-natalism, protect the brackets, white cis, propertyed family, um, agenda of the far right. So actually taking on the far right, if people wanted to take that seriously, would mean understanding and and how these things are deeply connected and need fighting for um, together. Um, And I really wish that would change um, because I I see them as as deeply intertwined. Yeah, let's talk about it more, actually, because I think it's really important because yeah as you started to outline there the the coalition of forces behind attacks on reproductive rights and the coalition of forces behind attacks on trans rights is um what's the phrase a venn diagram approaching a circle you know like it's that they're they're really closely interlinked so despite this turfs anti-trans activists make the claim that they are acting as a form of feminism and yet when you begin to dig down to this sort of shared coalition that kind of falls apart so could you explain the co the the forces that are making up this far right right wing push against both of these um kinds of healthcare yeah i mean it's this it's 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 the same people um <laughs> you know think tanks like uh the heritage foundation um who are drafting these sort of laws it's the same governors it's it's Ron DeSantis. It's uh, in Florida. It's Greg Abbott who have decided to make this a wedge issue, and the rhetoric is the same, right? It's think of the imagined children, mm. Ch- clearly imaginary children, right? Yeah. There is not, um, there are not, you know, these would be children under threat from um, uh, abortions because these children won't, because of uh, you know pregnant people's choices who don't want to be pregnant anymore. Um, they don't become children. They're proto-children that don't become children. 
I don't even need think to think we need to say ball of cells, but we are, you know, clearly Republicans, they're like, you know, centrifugal organizing force, rhetorical force is around this imagined futural figuration of the white child. And this was true, um, the, the white and imperiled child, crucially. And, you know, uh, the Nazis used the same sort of imagery and so did, uh, you know, Mussolini's fascists. Um, this is not new and it is a fascist figuration. But what you're seeing now, you know, and you're seeing it disgracefully throughout the entirety of the British press and now more recently also in the mainstream liberal US press. It's It's been part of the far right uh, for years and years, right? Um, in the US up until the last couple of years, it was very much considered like a mark of the far right and correctly so to take up these anti-trans positions in the name of the imperiled child who's going to, you know, fall under this... Um, <laughs> so-called social contagion, as if trans children are new, they're not, as if trans affirming medicine is new and unproven, it's not. Um, this is not about, you know, scientific concerns. This is about like fascistic figurations of children and who they are and what they're supposed to be um, in a deeply anti-trans um, direction. And what's so sickening is in places like The Guardian and The New York Times, yeah. you see the same rhetoric saying you know we're fine with trans people trans adults are fine if someone decides to be trans but aren't you worried about the children um and that is at base the child who has to be considered there is therefore invariably considered um presumed to be cis this figuration and at the same time and jules gill peterson yeah who's a fantastic historian who yeah. wrote a book called the histories of the transgender child makes this point really well and how much it kind of betrays that people just don't want trans children to exist and it's awful and it's organized and it's organized by the right and they've done a fantastic job in uh you know bringing in um a coalition of liberals who allegedly care about trans rights but clearly don't and have been bought into this eliminationist agenda through talk about parental concern and parental uh fear and the children um and it, it's really disturbing that, that it's managed to permeate so thoroughly um, and obviously to the absolute detri detriment um, in great risk of actually living children who are trans. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously don't mention this lightly, but it, it would feel strange to not mention the fact that Brianna Jai has been murdered and obviously our love and solidarity goes out to her family and friends and just everyone that is in that community and like both of us cares deeply that that's happened. The real children, she was 17, I think, so child, young adult, that is not registered at all. And, you know, another kind of example of how closely interlinked these things are, um, I can't remember the exact law, you, you may know, but um, I think Keir Starmer, was asked about um, access to. Oh, I'm not as good. I've lived in the US for 14 years. I'm not. Oh. I'm not as good at like the names of British laws and things. Well, someone was, someone was asking him about should people should 16 year olds have access to um, gender? I think it was hormone blockers um, or or some form of hormone treatment, and he basically said no. And of course, the law that ensures that is the same law that ensures that 
16 year olds can have access to abortions in England. And so they're, they're really closely interlinked in the fact that people, you know, are not their parents' property and, mm-hmm. you know, need to be able to have access to care without their parents' consent in some instances. But of course, when that's constantly framed in a sort of moral panic, borderline sort of, I don't know, I don't want to make light of it, but kind of psychotic register. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, paranoid, yeah. Paranoid, that's probably a better word, yeah. Sorry, I'm kind of going off the track slightly, but... No, I basically... no, no, I'm thinking... I think what's interesting, I think it's, you know, it's so interesting the way, like, parental rights discourse, both either in, you know, you've heard stories of, of you know, mothers saying, you know, my my teenage daughter is pregnant and I'm not allowed to help her get, get uh, you know, get an abortion. And these have been considered some of the most, like, powerful stories, right, for... um. And, you know, use whichever narratives we can. But I think in terms of, um, you know, the struggle for trans kids to exist and flourish, um, it's so interesting how parental rights, you you, you see um, the eliminationist agenda undergirding all of it. Because when it's parents who are supportive and love their trans kids and want in states like Florida where they have, and multiple multiple states at this point, but where they have banned um, gender affirming healthcare for uh, people under eighteen, uh, including puberty blockers and hormone treatment. Um, you know, those those crucial crucial life saving drugs for those who can even get them in the first place. It's not like access is readily available. Um, those parents uh, who want to support their children in transition are being told by the state no, you can't, you have no parental rights over this. We we decide what happens to your child's body. Mm. Um, but then in places where parents are like, but my parental rights, schools should not be allowed to not tell me if my child is socially transitioning at school. This has been a big moral paranoic panic that the New York Times vilely gave too much attention to of parents saying, but my rights, how dare a school not tell me if my kid is using different pronouns or a different name, um, which, you know, so crucial that kids are able to do that when so many families are not supportive and that, you know, autonomy is so crucial, especially in those years. Um, but because, you know, in, a lawyer who's filing a lawsuit against um, Florida for uh, banning healthcare for trans youth, uh, said in a press conference the, last week that it was sublimely ironic that, um, you know, the very same Republican leaders who are obsessed with the idea of parental rights, if and only if it's about getting books out of schools, if they relate to LGBTQ stories or anti-racist stories or accurate retellings of, you know, violent U.S. histories, those then parents' rights are above all, you know, they reign supreme. But when it's parents who, or parents who are worried and don't want their kids to be trans, those parents can have all the rights in the world. Um, but when it's parents who who actually are acting like comrades and, you know, the way we would hope all people should act towards each other um, when in the response to have the role of responsibility in an obligation over a child's life, which is not the same as ownership, those parents don't get to count, which makes quite clear that, you know, the only families that get to count are of a certain type and that really the underlying agenda is eliminationist and 
all these invocations of the child and the family, um, you know, they are just the the mode of delivery for that. Mm. I think probably one of the kind of final things that we could talk about is, I suppose, where where we might see things going from here, both in a positive sense and a more worrying sense. Let's I'll save the more positive stuff to finish with, so we can end on something nice. But you know, like one of my one of the things I wonder about with this is how you know this isn't like a US specific issue. It's like a that you know the the far right is global, and it's you know it seems like everywhere you look now there's a new sort of proto-fascist if not explicitly fascist force kind of emerging on the political scene um and specifically with the relationship between the us and the uk um it it feels like all oh, access to abortion is is relatively safe in the uk it feels although well that's complicated slightly by northern ireland where it's only been legalized recently but in england and uh wales and scotland it feels like it's quite a safe issue it doesn't feel like it's been made an issue yet however we know with the relationship between the sort of overflowing uh anti-trans agenda in the uk and also the need for issues like this to distract from other issues it, it could very well be transmitted into the political um discourse in the UK yeah. is that is that something you see happening I mean it's there is so there's so much interchange and like cross poisoning with the right wing in the US and UK of course but there are things that are you know qualitatively and historically materially different for example the 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 very Christian nature of um the very religious nature of the far right um in the US being so definitive, um, you know, even to the point that you have profoundly irreligious people like Donald Trump needing to pretend to be somewhat evangelical, you know, and that even that performance is necessary. Whereas, of course, the most rights denying, um, you know, and fash forward conservatives, very few of them feel the need to uh, make Christianity a part of that. I mean, of course, there are highly religious Christian um, traditionalists um, some of whom have a lot of wealth and power, um, but it's not sort of definitive of the right in the UK. So I think it, you know, abortion playing a role in the same way. I, I you know, hope I'm wrong, but I don't see that happening, especially if you consider the fact that, um, you know, this is not a new phenomenon in the US. The like attack on um, abortions and reproductive rights is, you know, decades in the making and successful over decades of um well-funded organization by the right um but i would say that doesn't mean you you obviously see that like the british conservatives and right are as invested in other but deeply related ways in uh you know the control of bodily autonomy and decimating bodily autonomy which you see um obviously with the um completely media Boyd, um, buoyed, I never know how to say the word, um, you know, anti, anti-trans campaigns, um, and that, uh, you know, that seems almost like unanimously to be agreed upon in the mainstream British press, which is unbearable and intolerable. Um, yeah. but also, you know, if, even if you're not aiming to ban abortions, if your austerity programs and logics decimate the healthcare system, people will 
suffer from a lack of reproductive rights. Poor, particularly poor and uh, people of color, you know, it will make maternal mortality far more likely. It will make, um, you know, access to re reproductive justice and the ability to safely um, carry a pregnancy or, you know, if there's a problem to be able to get checked to know you need an abortion or have the option for an abortion at a certain time. So there are these de facto ways in which, um, you know, British British style right wing actions and agendas, for example, the decimation of the NHS mean that, you know, you, you do actually have um, a lot of like, you know, anti reproductive rights activity happening, even if it doesn't um, have to name that and even if it has nothing to do with banning mm. abortions. And maybe to finish it in a more kind of optimistic, kind of forward-looking way, I mean... Yeah, I, hard. <laughs> yeah, which is not necessarily yeah, easy. Yeah, I mean, I after mean, a week like this, it's hard to feel um, joyful. But you know what What I think we have seen in um, in the US, and it's not just, you know, Jane's Revenge is just like the tiniest, tiniest, like, uh, you know, effort that we've seen. And it's, it's not the frontline stuff that I'm seeing that I think is really incredible. And this is work that's been happening, you know, in states where abortion was not available even long before Roe for, for years and years and years. People who, you know, do work on the front lines, do make sure people can get their, young people can get their abortion pills and get access to clinics, do do the work of escorting people when there are right-wing protests outside, or if having abortion seekers stay in their homes um, if they've traveled from other states. So those sort of frontline networks to make kind of reproductive justice, um, at least some sort of reality, um, when certainly you're not seeing, uh, you know, the Biden administration and Democrats do all the things they could do. Um, so I think those sort of on the ground actions are really affirming and deserve a huge amount of support. Um, young trans people who are standing up and fighting for their existence again in the, against the most appalling odds with so little support, both in lawsuits to challenge these aggressive laws, both in finding uh, each other in community and ways to get away from, you know, abusive parents and unsupportive communities. The, you know, the, when you see thousands of young people streaming outside of high schools in Florida when they pass the don't say gay law yeah. and you see, and you know, and this is predominantly cis straight kids shouting we say gay we say gay like those are really beautiful things like the kids are all right um and i just think they you know that's where we should be putting our support um and instead you're seeing you know week after week the new york times uh publishing reporting saying oh but you know aren't we worried about there being too many trans children um and things of that nature um so i think just yesterday a letter was sent to a public letter was sent to the New York Times that I'm a signatory of, along with about, um, I think, 800 people to this point, of 200 of which, you know, we've been New York Times contributors in the past or current contributors, um, decrying this coverage. And I think taking on, you know, it's not, we're not going to convince a far-right fascist to, um, you know. Yeah, stop being one. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I think... It's about building power and collectivity amongst those who are invested in bodily autonomy and, you know, mutual liberation, yeah. building those networks and, and committing to them and doing that. But also taking on, you know, 
when you're you're seeing in the name of like the paper of record and allegedly people that care about rights and have such huge powerful platforms like these New York Times uh, anti-trans youth stories though they'd never call themselves that have been used in lawsuits to uh, back up these right wing uh, anti-trans youth laws so you know it's take like holding those institutions to account the ones that you know are arguably reachable because you know just as I said just a few years ago that sort of anti-trans posturing when not coming from the far right like coming from so-called TERFs in England was really anathema in the US it was weird Sophie Lewis in fact wrote an, an <laughs> New York Times um, <laughs> op-ed a couple of years ago being like you know, explaining British turfism. And it like it was like a kind of weird curiosity across the pond. And, you know, today, miserably, the day after this letter goes public and is sent to the New York Times and gets a lot of press, the New York Times publishes a piece by famed miserable transphobe Pamela Paul, um, a columnist there, about, um, called In Defense of J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Um you know, uh, not in defense of the kids who've taken their own lives or been killed because they're trans, Um, you know, awful. So, uh, but you know, there are, you know, there are people who have been on the front lines of the struggle and continue to be and won't stop being and won't stop existing. And, um, you know, it's about following them and not, you know, the alleged reason mongers in the Times and the Guardian and whatnot. Thank you to Natasha for her time and insights, and thank you for listening to Red Medicine.